if you would please stand and I'm going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 4. So if you'll stand with me, I'll read Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to begin in verse 7 and read down through verse 16 as we really kind of take a, a couple of weeks here to focus on shepherding and sheep, what it means to lead a congregation, what it means for a congregation to follow, and yet what it also means that the leaders are also followers, that the shepherds are also sheep, and that we have to live together well in a way that would please and honor the Lord to accomplish the task of seeing Christ magnified. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Please be seated. Last night was one of my favorite nights of the year. It's the night of our underground church for our youth, and we do this once a year, and Essentially, we release 80 teens upon the unsuspecting community. Their goal, as we give it to them as they leave the church, is to try to find the secret meeting place so that they can worship God without being persecuted. They try to make it to this secret meeting place, knowing that there are secret police all around trying to capture them and take them to our jail. So as we release them, they go to the park and they try to find someone there they, that they don't know. They have a code phrase that they ask and sometimes they'll ask random strangers the code phrase, uh, do you know where we can get some seeds to plant? And they're like, Lowe's? Uh, but if you know the right words, you say, well, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. So that's the code phrase you give back and then you get your clues. And meanwhile, again, there's secret police running around. They have squirt guns and they're all disguised and they'll, they'll sometimes fake being the contact and you walk up to them and say the code word and they're like, huh, the code word is to get sprayed in the face with a water gun. Uh, so all of these things are going on, and yet the whole purpose is then ultimately they get to a safe house, and from that house they go and we find our meeting place. But the end result is that we have an opportunity then to, to worship. And this game that we play is for many very real. If you live in North Korea, if you live in China, if you live in many places in the world, there are those who infiltrate meeting places, those who try to figure out where people are meeting so they can harm them and so they can drag them off to prison. So these things are real. The game that we play, we don't try to simulate reality because we end up in trouble trying to do that. We can't. It's not reality for us. And yet, the goal is to have fun for the game to help us think about that reality and then to gather together to do what that persecuted, the real persecuted church is doing and what we are called to do, which is worship. That's the goal. The goal is not to play a game. The goal is to worship. And so we begin to focus down in our activity and we talk about the persecuted church. So we have those who will read some testimonials from that, uh, those who are persecuted. And so it helps our teens get, get a mindset around what we played as a game is really real. And then really the, the highlight of the evening as we sing and then as the word is presented. 
This is the highlight of what we do is the proclamation of the word of God. And usually in this evening, we have unbelievers who are with us. There are unbelievers in our own congregation, our young people, and then they, they invite their friends and, and they have the opportunity to hear what believers ought to do because many of our young people are believers. They love the Lord and so we want to encourage them, but also we want to make sure that we present the truths of the gospel. We are here and you can only worship if you know Jesus. There's no worship that is just faith in faith or worship of worship. And so we want to bring that home and so the, the evening culminates with the teaching of the word of God. And it's a, it's a good reflection. It's a sweet reflection of what the church does. As we're talking about elders and church, and we'll talk this morning about the ministry of prayer and the word, that everything is focused around the preaching and teaching, the application of the principles of the word of God. And that's what we're modeling even for our teens and even for unbelievers, that they would come in our midst and, and the focus isn't on the game, the focus isn't on the, on the stuff that we're doing. That's all a vehicle to point us to the true focus, which is Christ has proclaimed in his word. And that's what the church does. That is our focus, whether it's young people or children or older, or older mature adults. Everything the church does focuses on the preaching and teaching of the word because it is from there that we gain life. That is how the Spirit of God transforms our hearts. And so the church must operate at every level presenting that truth. It's fundamental to everything that we do. But it is also true that the whole body is needed for these things. Yes, we were playing a game, but the whole purpose of this was to help our youth. And all along the way, even you've got cab drivers driving people around and sharing the gospel, talking about the truths, even, even helping teams who are not doing what they're supposed to do to confront them and say, these are the right things to do. Everywhere that gospel witness is being presented by leaders from our own church. About 80 teams, but about 75 leaders to get this whole thing done, actively working, helping with the food, helping with, you know, run around in the parks, helping then to set things up and take things down. But all of this built around the exercise of giftedness and all these 75 individuals uniquely impacting and engaging with, with teens and with other adults using their unique giftedness. There's no gift of underground church. There is a unique spiritual giftedness that each one is engaging. In our jail, we have those, you know, we take the kids to jail and like, bummer, I got caught at the first park and I'm going to sit for an hour in jail. Yeah, and then you're going to have Mark do and others say, do you know Jesus? Can you share the gospel with me? Imagine an unbeliever sitting there, eyes this big. What have I gotten myself into, right? And then it's being gentle and kind, generally. No, of course, if we have, you know, our more experienced teens, our seniors are getting a little bit more grilling down in the basement. They're like, no, no, Genesis you know, 1-1 is not going to cut it. All right, well, we need to hear some gospel. So at all levels, gift, the giftedness of uh, the individuals in the church, the leaders in the church are reflecting through them to impact these teens and impact other adults. What a sweet time. And yet, again, just a little microcosm of what the church does as a whole. All of that based around the truths of the word of God. Now, unfortunately, the twofold trend in the church is either to expect that a couple of people will do all that work. Imagine if we said, Rob, run underground church by yourself. So he jumps in one car and he drives, and then he jumps in another car and he drives, and then he goes to, of course, that's ridiculous, right? One person cannot fulfill the work of 75, so that would be ridiculous. And yet, oftentimes, that's what the church is asking those that it pays to accomplish the work, saying, look, you do all of this. Here's six elders, really three of them, two of them are, are the paid elders, and then you do all the work. The, the staff, we're paying you, we're supporting you to get all this work done. That would be ridiculous. How is it that we could accomplish the work of seeing the world impacted, our community, and then the whole world impacted with a couple of people that are paid? It would be ridiculous. Yet, oftentimes, that's how it's viewed. Yeah, we, we pay you. We free you up to do the work. As we'll see this morning, you're not freeing us up to do the work. You're freeing us up to help you do the work, to equip you to get it done. But again, it just makes no sense, right? Just think about that activity last night. One person, two people, six people trying to do that, it would not have gotten done. 
But then the flip side problem with the models of church we have today, if it's not the, the, the leadership model, which is, look, you the, you, the paid leaders, do it all, well, then it tends to be that we don't want any leaders at all. So we're just all going to get together and kind of do whatever we want. Imagine if we just released 80 teens out into the community and said, hope, hope something good happens. It kind of feels like that at times, but that's not what we're actually doing. There's people in the park everywhere. They're watching. They're paying attention. We're taking care. But it was, it's carefully directed, all focused around a purpose. Imagine you get caught up in the fun or you get caught up in eating the food. A couple of people might share the gospel, but no, it's focused. Well, the church cannot just be a group of people hanging out just kind of doing whatever. We'll all get together in some magical way, everything will get accomplished. It won't. There's a leadership that has to direct and guide according to the principles of the word. And when that works together, the leaders equipping the saints who do the work, then the world is changed. And that's what this is all about. That's why we're taking a minute just to back up to remind ourselves of these things. And these are not congregation or, or messages to a congregation who isn't doing these things. You are doing these things. We had 75 people, maybe more last night, who were actively working, just in that one little thing that we did. So this is not a congregation that isn't active, that doesn't recognize this reality, but we just want to remind you that this is what we are doing, and then we're going to extend this out into the world. We've got a church we're trying to plant, right? So it's going to be all hands on deck to go do that and then, and then do the same thing there. So all of these things, these are just reminders for us. And as there are many new who have joined us over these past year or so, past couple of years, we just want to all be on the same page as to how the elders equip the saints and how they respond. And here we have the model for it. So what we'll see this morning is God has so designed the church that when the elders faithfully equip the saints through the ministry of prayer and the word, the church reaches full maturity and is properly guarded against error. God has so designed the church that when the elders faithfully equip the saints through the ministry of prayer and the word, the church reaches full maturity and is properly guarded against error. God has ordained elders to equip the church to accomplish the work of ministry. And this is the second, really, of, of three sessions that we'll give. And last week, we talked about the nature of the gifts, the gifts given. And we began in verse 7. It says, but to each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift, this unique gift given to every believer and won by Christ as he defeats the powers of sin and death and hell and he ascends in triumph to the right hand of his father, then dispensing to his church the necessary gifts to accomplish the work that he has, which is that he himself will fill all things. He leaves his body behind to accomplish that work so that all things are summed up in Christ. That's our one job. Make Christ look great through the proclamation of the truth and the making of disciples so that there are those who come into the body of Christ properly reflecting the character and nature of Jesus himself. That's the gift given. And then we looked in verse 11 with the gifted men. So every believer has a gift and yet there are gifts that God also gives to his church, which then come through individual or gifted men who live these gifts out for the directing of the rest of the gifts. You have to have these fundamental gifts in place so that all of the church can be healthy. And it began, as we saw in verse 11, with apostles and prophets, those who take the inspired word of God, direct words from God, and either speak them so that the people can respond or write them out, and they were finished, those words, that laying of that foundation, that was finished in the first century. When the apostle John finishes writing the book of Revelation, the 66 books are done. The foundation has been laid, and so those inspired words, those direct authoritative words from God are ended, not because the Spirit can't do that, 
He ceased being authoritative, of course not, but all of the authoritative words are found here, so he does not contradict himself nor add to these words. So the apostles and prophets are done, but now we have what? The evangelists and the pastors and teachers who come along to use this truth, now fully given, every word necessary for life and godliness given to us, and the evangelists and pastor teachers come alongside now the church to lead and direct in living out these truths. They're no longer giving further truth. They're explaining the truth that has already been given, and they're absolutely essential, these gifted men that are given. And we focus then on the gift of elders, these pastor teachers, those who shepherd, who feed, who guard, who discipline, who nurture, who lead the flock and are required to have the spirit-empowered gift of, of teaching that they can take the truths of the word and make explanation of them, that they love these truths and they, they, they teach them to the congregation in ways that are effective. But all of this is built around a proper character. We saw last week that there has to be, these men have to be qualified according to their character and probably nothing reflects this better than the heart of the apostle Paul, except for the Lord Jesus himself, who is the one person upon whom all of these characteristics are based. Yet Paul is a man who is living out these truths as an apostle, as a prophet, as an evangelist, and also as an elder. And this is his heart when he was at a church, 1 Thessalonians 2.8, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because we, you had become very dear to us. A passionate love of the Lord and a love of people that says we won't only dispense to you these truths, that's essential, that's the, that's the beginning place, but we will dispense to you our lives. That's what shepherds do. They lay down their lives. They give in living sacrifice, usually, not martyred sacrifice, although that happens. But they give in living sacrifice their lives out of a fond affection, out of a deep love, not out of a sense of just, well, I'm gonna accomplish a job. I'm gonna get something done. I'm going to have some kind of influence. I'm gonna do what I'm gifted to do. No, I, this is done out of a deep, passionate love for the flock. And that's what qualifies an elder. They love the people and that is the motivation for spreading the word. So this morning what we'll look at is we really now, we've talked about the gifted men. Now we'll talk about what they do. What are these gifted men called to do? And we'll work our way down through verse 14 and then next week we'll talk about 15 and 16 and kind of wrap this up in relationship to how we interact together. But this morning we'll look at the process of equipping, the purpose of equipping, and the product of equipping because we have one job. And if you look down in verse 12, there it is, for the equipping of the saints. These gifted men are given, right now remaining the evangelists and pastor teachers, the elders. These men are given for a reason that they would equip the saints, that the saints would do the work and the body of Christ would be built up. So that's the process is equipping. The elders are given so that they might provide the necessary resources. They might equip, give the right equipment, cause the body to be built up by its own interactions with one another. We provide the equipment, as it were, and the body does the building. So this equipping, the idea of literally bringing something to perfection or completion, it was used of setting bones, right? So if a bone is broken, it needs to be set in order so that it can then grow. Well, that's what the elders do. They give the proper correction. They give the proper instruction. They set the bones so that they might grow. Our illustration here is a building, the equipping of the saints for the works of service. It really is a, although again, comes from that, you know, that bone mending idea, but it was used for buildings too. When a building starts, it has just a foundation, but it has to have all of the pieces necessary so that it can accomplish its function as a building. And then also here we have a body metaphor 
right? The idea that we are the body of Christ, so the idea of the whole body working together. All the parts of the body are needed. So these elders are to be sure that the building is being properly equipped so that it accomplishes its purpose, it's being built and then run properly. The other illustration so that the body has all of the parts necessary and all of those parts are properly functioning. This is our goal. We equip the saints so that they can then bring about the proper work. You put the building in place and then it gets its job done. Make sure the body's healthy and what? The body goes and does the job. That's the idea. Well, the elders are to do that, to equip the saints. And notice the saints. That is, every true believer, those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit are the holy ones. This is not some unique person within the congregation. Not some person who looks and goes, wow, that's a holy guy. You know, we're going we're we're to venerate that person. No, we are all saints. We have been set apart, given the Holy Spirit, and empowered to be holy as we are clothed in the holiness of Christ. What an amazing thought. We are the saints, the set-apart ones, the holy ones, and so we're to equip believers. The unbelievers certainly can come amongst us. We're not equipping unbelievers. They have to know Jesus. That was a message last night. You, you know, Andrew was, was talking about that we are to redeem the time for the days of evil. Well, you can't start redeeming your time for good if you are an unbeliever. You have to know Christ first. You can't equip the saints for the works of service. You can't do the works of service if you don't know Christ, if you're not a saint. That is, you've repented and believed. You put faith and trust in Christ, and the Spirit of God indwells you and empowers you. So we are equipping the saints, those who know Christ, so that they can accomplish the work. This does not have primarily to do with resources and structure to various programs, although, as you'll see next week, ministries are necessary so that we see, so that these, these, this equipping actually can be viewed as taking place. But this is primarily coming through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God in such a way that the individual church members are brought to maturity so that they have the desire and spiritual depth to use their giftedness in an effective way. When the church is full of spirit-filled people, that is, those who have the Spirit of God because they're believers, but who are being constantly filled, Ephesians 5.18, with the Spirit because they are setting aside sin, taking hold of the principles of the Word and putting them into practice. When the church is full of Spirit-filled people, they can be directed in a way which enables them to put their gifts into practice in effective ways. The people themselves are spurred on by the Spirit of God through the Word of God to meet needs around them in unique ways that correspond to their gifting. And the way that this equipping happens, right, not mentioned directly here, but laid out in Scripture and really exemplified by the first elders of the Church of Jerusalem who are also the apostles, when faced with the more practical needs of the church, which are always spiritual, by the way. So in Acts chapter 6, you have an issue where the, the Hellenistic Jews, uh, the widows, were not being cared for. There was one group that was and one group that wasn't. And the apostle said, we cannot take the time for, to ourselves go and minister at all of those tables, so we will ask the congregation to bring forth men whom we will then approve to go out and do that. Spirit-filled men, because to minister to others always requires the Spirit of God. It's not just serving them some food. It is encouraging and strengthening and building them up, mending the, all, the barriers which were already happening because one group of widows is cared for, another wasn't, and you can imagine the disunity that is fomenting under the surface. So godly men go, appointed by the elders to accomplish those things. And it is not as though elders wouldn't serve at a table or, as it were, wash a bathroom or vacuum a floor. They certainly would and do, but that's not their primary task. Because the apostles then say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Those two things essentially build out the equipping ministry of the elders. 
John MacArthur. Even the most biblical and efficient of church organizations will not produce spiritual maturity without the leadership of God's gifted ministers who are continually in prayer and in his word. Administration and structure has its place. And again, we'll talk about a little bit more of that next week. But it is far from the heart of spiritual church growth. The great need of the church has always been spiritual maturity rather than organizational restructuring. All the books on leadership, organization, and management offer little help to the dynamics of the church of Jesus Christ. And read them. Even the, even the Christian leadership books tend to focus on the structures and the methods and the things that can be put into place so that the church will grow. Again, you need some sort of structure. You need some methods by which you move forward. But you must first have this word and prayer that direct the heart of the church. So let's look at that first, the ministry of prayer. For the elders to lack prayer is for the elders to be unqualified. For the elders to lack in prayer means that they will be unable to properly equip the saints regardless of how much Bible teaching they do. A Bible teaching ministry that is not undergirded by consistent faithful prayer will ultimately be ineffective. The Bible is clear all the way through that prayer begins any effective ministry and it isn't just a Christian cliché. The elders must be men of prayer who consistently pray together and then who pray individually as well. Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. That's for every believer. But certainly that is true for the elders, that they would pray in the spirit, according, that is according to the principles of the word of God, filled with the spirit of God, pursuing holiness that they would be pouring out their hearts in prayer and petition on the alert with all perseverance for every one of the saints. That's our primary goal. And when the elders do this, they recognize and model true dependence. Because again, elders are not sufficient in and of themselves to accomplish anything. It is not their natural giftedness, their charisma, any of those things. The issue is the Spirit of God must work through them, and the Spirit of God's work begins when we pray. So we are modeling proper dependence when we pray as elders, the kind of dependence that we expect of the rest of the congregation. It's not like, well, you congregation are dependent. We elders, we have this qualification. We have this gift of teaching. And so you are dependent, but we are not. I would be absolutely unqualified to lead if any elder thought that and wasn't actually living according to their own dependence to pray. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Certainly the elders of the church have to have their hearts and minds guarded by the peace of God to not be frantic in difficult times. What will we do with the congregation that's wrestling and struggling? How will we protect them from all the things that are coming? How will we walk forward and with new people coming and everything happening? It all begins by going to the Lord to say, Father, we desperately need you to build this work. And then our own minds are peaceful, and when they are, we make good decisions. When we're not anxious, frustrated, angry, fearful, then a church makes good decisions that aren't reactionary. Then the elders can properly lead when they themselves have brought all of these things to the Lord in prayer, showing dependence upon him. But this also is devotion to Christ. Those who pray are demonstrating their proper devotion to the Lord, that they are totally captivated with his heart, with his desires. A person who does not pray really indicates that they are not devoted to the work of God. They're doing their own work. 
Colossians 4, 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Again, devoting yourselves to communication with the one to whom you have highest devotion. That's why we pray. Because we love him and we're consumed with what he wants. And the only way to get what God wants is to pray. Because he is the one who then exerts his power to accomplish the works. There's a devotion that is necessary, a devotion to prayer, which is truly a devotion to the Lord to whom we are continually praying. And praying is talking to God. That's what it is. Right? No more, no less. Right? We, are, we are speaking to the Lord, crying out, asking him for the things that only he can do. And this brings greater discernment. It, it involves discernment to pray, and then it brings the proper discernment, 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. I mean, doesn't it feel like that? By the way, that was written 2,000 years ago. So don't, don't pack your bags, right? Because Peter felt the same way, right? The end of all things is near. Therefore, we have sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Just say, run around like chickens with their head cut off, freak out about all the things that are happening and wonder what in the world are we going to do, throw up our hands and go, look, what, look what's happening in the church today. Look at our world. Look at our political system. Look at our economics. What will we do? That is not how Christians respond. We have sound judgment, sober spirit. That is, we think biblically. We live according to the principles of the word of God. Our hearts are protected and guarded by the power of God and an understanding of his sovereignty. And the leaders have to exemplify this kind of sober discernment. And it only comes through prayer. And the word as we recognize these truths and then, and then, and then, and then, Give them back to the Lord in prayer. We have sound judgment, a sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. We pray biblically. We pray for biblical principles to be enacted. We pray so that the, what the Bible directs us to do gets accomplished. But leaders that do not pray in this way will lead the church wrongly. And they will just simply fold at the difficulties. They'll fold in. They'll capitulate to the needs of the culture and to the fear that they have. This prayer, this ministry of prayer is then one of diligence. See, an elder is not wasting his time when he prays. We're not wasting our time in our elders meeting when we pray. We try to meet every week. That probably factors into with people being gone and things that happen you know, over, over the course of a year, probably three times a month where we get together. Every time when we get together, the first thing that we do is we spend an hour sharing uh, about the needs of the church and praying. This is essential for us. Everything we do is grounded in that. And apart from that, we won't be able to lead you well. We will be misdirected. We will get all concerned about business and all the things that have to happen. And we will forget that we need to pray. And remember, the power is not in the prayer. The power is in the God to whom the prayer is addressed. Prayer is talking to God. The power is found as we talk to God and he accomplishes his work. There's not some special magic in prayer. It is, the, it, is the, it is the assigned means to take hold of God's power. And God does his work as we pray. I remember in Luke 18, as Jesus gives his parable of the woman who just keeps coming back, the un, unbelieving woman who just keeps coming back before the unbelieving judge who finally grants her will because he's just tired of her. He says, God is not like that. But I'm giving you that principle Jesus says in Luke 18, 1, he was telling them a parable to show that all, at all times they should pray and not lose heart. You starting to lose heart? Pray. Are you losing heart? It's because you don't pray. And when things don't appear to be happening the way you want, you keep praying. Because your father is not like an unjust judge from whom you are trying to grasp, drag some kind of blessing. He is the one who longs 
for his church and pours his blessings out upon it. So the elders are modeling these things, dependence, devotion, discernment, and diligence. And as they do that, then they are able to do the next aspect of their ministry, which is number two here, the ministry of the word the ministry of the word. And that flows from the ministry of prayer, but also works its way back around. It's like a circle. If you have the ministry of the word, then you can pray properly. And as you pray properly, the ministry of the word is effective. This takes many forms, this ministry of the word and the preaching and teaching begins with the pulpit, but this isn't the only place where the word is proclaimed. We proclaim the word on Saturday night at Friends you know, Friendship Baptist Church over on Old Niles Ferry as we have a bunch of teens sitting around freezing to death. Right? We proclaim the word on Wednesday nights. You proclaim the word in your fellowship groups. You proclaim the word when you're counseling. Right? This proclamation of the word begins. It's the center of it. It models it here as we preach from the pulpit, but it goes far beyond that, even as the elders preach and teach and equip those to preach and teach in other places. It just begins here. It does not end. This is not the only place where this happens, of course. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God. Why do we do this? Why the ministry of the word? and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate or perfect, mature, equipped for every good work. Do you believe that? Of course you do. That's why you're sitting here on Sunday mornings. Otherwise, you wouldn't be spending your time. But it's also true that we then have to live that out. We pray that that would go on. You pray for the elders who are preaching and teaching and are equipping others to do that as well. 2 Timothy 4.1. Paul writing a pastoral epistle that is writing to a pastor at Ephesus, Timothy, who would model then what it was to live as a pastor. And Paul is giving out the qualifications for pastors, for elders. He's giving the qualifications for those who would teach and lead a church. And he says at the end of this book that he wrote right before he was about to go, most likely to, have, to be beheaded by Nero, his final letter, as nearly as we can determine, written to Timothy, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Christ is coming. He's going to judge. What should we be doing? Preach the word. Be faithful in season. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. It will turn their ears away from the truth, will turn aside to myths. But you, speaking to the leader of the church, Timothy, are best understanding a leader amongst a group of elders who were there, who in fact even commissioned him. But you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Well, drawing the words from 2 Timothy 3, what does this ministry entail? Teaching. Teaching, that is proper instruction to bring understanding of propositional truth. It's not a song and dance. It's not one big point with a bunch of good illustrations. It drives me crazy. We can only have one point in a sermon, really. How are we going to preach all of the truths of the Word of God? You're going to need more than one. Right? You're going to need a ton of them in any given sermon, a whole bunch of points that you receive. Yeah, it might culminate in one big one. That's fine. But it is a series of propositional truths that are constantly being taught. And there's a lot of truth here. It's all the truth you need for life and godliness. It's all the truth that will ever be given in this age, and therefore we teach it. And so you do not come, again, to hear stories. You come to hear this propositional truth, the words spoken explained so that they can be understood and lived. Teaching is the foundation of everything that we do. 
1 Timothy 4, 6. In pointing these things out to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the word of faith and the sound doctrine which you have been following. 1 Timothy 6, 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine other than what Paul had been teaching... Right? And that the Lord Jesus taught. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to God in this, he is conceited and understands nothing. Nothing. There's words to be conformed to. We don't do doctrine. We don't like to preach propositional truth because that's boring. The world doesn't need propositional truth. Really. The Bible says you need propositional truth because these are the means by which you know God. He doesn't just zap this truth into your heart. It is taught to you through the mind, understood under the illumination of the Spirit of God, and it's the only way that you will look like Christ, propositional teaching. So that's why we have an hour-long sermon. That's why we do those things on Wednesday nights. You can't teach propositional truth in little teeny snippets, little teeny opinionated sermonettes. You've got to teach it strongly and deeply, and the congregation has to learn how to respond to hear, to listen for 45 or 50 minutes, to carefully walk through what it means, a particular passage means. And that takes work. If you're new here this morning, you might be thinking, oh, he just he dipped his hand at how long this is going to go. And it's going to go for a while. I remember one time I was preaching and I had the outline and I said, okay, now turn your outlines over. And literally someone in the congregation went, are you kidding? <laughs> well, I get it. I do. If you're, not from, if you're not used to that kind of thing, you're like, what is going on here? But this is what we are called to do, to teach, to, to reprove. And even some, okay, teaching. Oh, we love teaching. Teach us more. So, I mean, that's why most of you are here. You would not be sitting in this church if you didn't like to be taught. But the problem is too many of us want to be taught and we don't want to be reproved. But that's the next word, word in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Timothy 3.16. Teaching for reproof. What's reproof? That is, the kind of exhortation that exposes and brings to light our sin brings conviction as a result and gives a strong exhortation to stop sinning. Oh, now that's not the kind of sermon that we want. Teach me, teach me, but don't tell me what I'm doing wrong. And particularly, don't tell me what I'm doing wrong and then require that I stop it. Because see, that's why this goes beyond the pulpit. The reproof is not, hey, we wish you wouldn't do that anymore. It's now we have to have things in place that help you not do that. And we're not talking about the elders meddling down into the, the form of your lives. Well, you'd better teach, you know, at home, your, your structure better be like this, and you'd better school this way and do these things. There's a whole range in which these things are lived out, but the principles have to be lived out. It's why we have church discipline. So ultimately, if someone does not repent from ways that they are disobeying the word of God taught, they are set outside the church because it demonstrates they're unbelievers, or at least they have to be viewed as that. So there's teeth to this reproof, and it's not something that the elders of this church came up with. We didn't say, oh, well, we, we want to we start reproving. We like that. So we're, no, we're commended to do this. And so it says reprove. I mean, imagine the airline mechanic who's fixing the engine wrongly. And the supervisor walks by day after day and watches him fix it wrongly and never says anything. Keeps teaching him, oh, you need to do it this way, do it this way, do it this way. And he doesn't do it. And that engine is about to go off the assembly line onto the wing of some plane that's going to fly 350 people across the country and it's about to fail. And the supervisor just keeps walking by. It's fine. No problem. Or he says, oh, don't stop that. Don't do that. He walks by the next time. The guy hasn't changed anything. Well, that's okay. It's not okay. There's, there's more, there are lives at stake by what's going on here. There's the, the glory of Jesus that's at stake here. And so the elders cannot walk by. The leaders of the church cannot walk by and say, that's fine. That marriage that's in disarray, that's okay. That harming of your children by refusing to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, that's all right. 
I'm not here to tell you exactly what form that discipline and instruction takes. We've got to just you know, do it this many times. and I've got a whole list for you as to what you do. But you've got to do it, and it either is or is not being done. But these are the thing, kind of things, these biblical principles. There has to be reproof. Then there has to be correction. You can't just say, well, that's wrong. Stop that and not say, here's how you fix that. A lack of correction when there is reproof leads to bitterness and ineffectiveness. So we teach you what to do. Here's the principle. Oh, you're not doing the principle. You need to stop that. It's wrong. Here's what you need to do. And then we want to help you do what's right. See, that's what good parenting does. You're not just teaching your children, reproving them from doing wrong, and never showing them how to correct their errors. See, that takes work, doesn't it? Your child is continually responding back with disobedience, and you've got to figure out, how do I help them learn not to do that? How do I show them and direct them and guide them? Well, the church is the same. Solid correction, 2 Timothy 2.25, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And then there is training. So there's teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. So then it's like, so you teach the original principle, there's, there, it's done wrongly, so you say, here's how you need to do it rightly. You do that correction, that reproof and correction, and then you continue training so they move forward. You're not just always going over the same thing. That was wrong, do this. That was wrong, do this. If that was wrong, do this. Now build upon what you learned by growing in maturity so you can go on to do other things. My mentor used to say over and over, stop committing the same mistakes. Uh, it's fine if you sin. Stop sinning the same sin all the time. Right? Move on. Right? It's, it's time to grow, to build. When I reprove you, build on that, eliminate that problem, and move on. Now, again, we wrestle with the same sins over and over. I understand that. But we shouldn't be mired in the same stuff over and over. That Someone said, look, you need to stop that. Let's fix that. You, your marriage is a mess in this way. You're being angry and bitter. You can't just keep doing that all the time. And it's not just keep correcting your bitterness and anger. It's lay on top of that the, po- the proper principles so that you can love and care for and lay your life down for your wife, which you're never going to get to if you can't get past anger and bitterness. That's how we train our children. It's how we train anyone. It's how the church is trained. So that is the process of equipping. Well, what's the purpose? The purpose is, it's a pretty powerful purpose back in our text. So we are equipping the saints, and here's the purpose now for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, we're equipping you to actually do the work. Right? It, it is not that the supervisor every time comes along and builds the engine. Right? He has to show and he might get down on his knees or on the workbench and say, look, no, here it's done and, and, and do that. But he can't, he can't take all the time to build all the engines or they won't get done. One will get done. So it is to equip you to do the work. And the church will not be built properly if you are not being given the proper equipment through prayer and the word to then put into practice these principles and see that the church is built. So the purpose is for the works of service that you would be able to properly do the work that God has called you to do. That's service. And to minister in such a way that enables the body to be spiritually and physically healthy Enabling those individuals to please and honor God more fully. That's what service does. It is enabling you to do more profitably and biblically the things that God has called you to do. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, building people up and strengthening them. And it is for what? For the building up of the body. So we have, again, both this this building metaphor of building up, this, this completing a building, that's what, that's what the word is. 
But then the body, so you're building a body. So both metaphors are in play. The building has to have all the necessary parts and the body has to function together. And it's not just putting the structure together or just having the shell of the body. It's that it is then properly interacting, properly working. Well, you've got a heart, but it's not beating. That's a problem. Look at all these blood vessels. I stuck them in there, but they're all blocked. Well, that's not going to help you. My wife's a, a diabetic. You've, you've, you have, you, you know, you've got a liver there. You've got an islet of Langerhams. The problem is that it doesn't work. So therefore, it has to be supplemented. So, so every part of the body, every part of the building is supposed to operate correctly. It has to be constantly maintenanced, constantly made more healthy. But you are doing that. We're giving you the equipment, and then you are accomplishing that work within the body, seeing that others are built up, others are strengthened, and that this work goes forward. You are responsible to make sure that the rest of the body is healthy. That's not only on the leaders of the church. We're giving you the equipment. You have to do the work. Again, it's like you've got a, a group of nurses in a hospital. And the nursing director says, okay, you've had your training, you've had your teaching. Here are all the resources. Go save lives. Go help people get healthy. That person doesn't try to run around every hospital room and say, I got to do it. I got to do it. Get out of the way. I got to do it. And if it doesn't happen, that hospital fails and people die and people stay sick all their lives. You have been given, are being given the necessary resources. You have to build. You have to see that it is strengthened so that the body is what it needs to be because what is, what is the body supposed to reflect? That's the, the product. What, what happens when this is true? So you have the preaching of the word, the ministry of prayer that the elders use to equip the saints and all of the ministries, again, that's next week, we'll talk about that, dispense those truths. And then you have you being equipped then to do the actual work of service for the building up of the body that is making it strong and healthy. And when that happens, how are we to evaluate whether we have accomplished our work back in our text? Until. So how long do we do this? How do the elders know? How do you know if the body's healthy? Well, it's a pretty simple litmus test. Until we all attain, that's every person in the body, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's first. What's the unity of the faith? It's not simply that everyone believes in Jesus because that's how you get in the body. Right? You can't be equipped for the work of service unless you are in the body, unless you have believed in Christ. It is certainly part of that, that you are believing in Jesus, the exercise of faith, but it is more. This word here binds up not only the truth that you believe or not only the belief in the truth, but also the truth that you believe. This Unity of the faith is unity around the truths of the faith that you believe. And everybody has to believe the same thing, which is the principles of Scripture properly explained. You can't bring your own truth here. You can't bring your own new doctrine. You can't say, we're going to believe this, we're going to believe this. We all have to believe the same thing. And so we're wrestling. That's why we have our new members class, and you'll come today and we'll, we'll work through our doctrinal statement. If you're going to come to church here, this is what you are affirming that you believe. You can't come in and invent it, and the elders are not inventing it. And we are showing our hand up front. This is what we believe. And it's not something we invented. It's something that has, has had a steady, firm foundation from the time the Bible was written to now. Certainly the church can get things wrong over time that you've got to correct. So you can say, well, the church taught that, so we're going to teach that. You have to be careful to evaluate what the church has taught, but the church has taught a body of truth that has been faithful down throughout since the time that John finished writing the book of Revelation on the Isle of Patmos. There are certain things that are true when we build our doctrinal statement around those truths. And we say, you're going to have to believe this. And we really desire to believe everything the same when it comes to doctrine. 
We don't all, and we wrestle with variations of doctrine and uh, outside the doctrinal statement, and we as individual elders wrestle as we try to understand these truths, but the goal is that we would all understand the truth, and when we get to heaven, we will all believe the same. Don't say, well, no, my take on this verse is this. Jesus will say, no. (laughs) My take on this verse is this. You're wrong, right? Now, I'm not saying we as elders can say it with that kind of certainty. Don't mishear me. I didn't say that, but I'm saying that Jesus can and that we are supposed to match that, and there is a way by the Spirit of God and proper interpretational principles that we can say, this is truth, and we all have to believe this truth, and it's bound up in the knowledge of Jesus, his person and his work, and the application of those principles into our lives. That's, that's the knowledge, because we all want to know the right Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture. We all want to know the character of Jesus that's found here. We all want to know the commands of Jesus that he tells his church to do when he left, so that they would feel, so he would fill all things through his body. And so we are fighting and striving to all believe the same thing. Do not come here with innovations in doctrine. We're not interested. Let's try this new thing. What about this? I just saw this blog here. We're going to believe that. We are not. We're not going to, the doctrinal statement is not going to change. We might change in our individual understandings of particular verses. Yeah, that might change over time. But not the doctrinal statement. It's what we believe. We're not about theological innovation in that sense. We're about pouring into the lives of people in unique and powerful and special and individual ways. But we all do that with the same doctrine, and our goal is to have that unity of the faith. We believe the same thing, and we believe the same thing about our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that is not only truth about him, but then the experience of an intimate relationship with him that we are constantly growing in, that knowledge of the Son of God. And what, what is that? When do we stop with that? How do we know when we're done? Right? It says, until we what? Attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. We all want to look like Jesus. And we need to do that as a body. It can't be, well, I'm, I'm, I'm seeking to walk like Jesus, but the person next to me isn't. No, this is a corporate issue. That's why you have elders that say, no, we all need to look like this. The fact that you want to do that is wonderful. But you need to use your giftedness so that the rest of the body also does this. And you are accountable that other people in this body do this, not just us. The goal is that everyone in this body looks like Jesus and that we together, when we gather and when we scatter, that we look like Jesus. That our witness to the world is a mature man. We don't need more children. We don't need childish churches that cannot decide what they believe and cannot properly reflect Jesus that do not stand for the truth, but also are harsh, angry, bitter. We don't need those churches. We need ones that look like the mature Jesus, able to properly bring the, the strength of condemnation and confrontation when necessary, also able to bend down and say, I love you and care for you. Come with me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We need all of that aspect of who Jesus is. We need maturity. See, a lack of maturity means you just drag one piece of who Jesus is, and that becomes your stick, your thing. I confront. I'm full of compassion. No, Jesus was both. And we do that as a church. And we do it according to the principles of the Word of God. And then we reflect to the world the mature Jesus, not the baby Jesus, not the childish Jesus, not the Jesus who doesn't exist. It's not a real Jesus. That's a powerful thought. The measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. Well, we're not quite done. Because in this fullness of Christ that we must have, unity of faith and knowledge, if you're taking notes, maturity in Christ to a mature man, to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ, to fullness in Christ, well, 
here's what else we need. Because you can't just only work on the positive side. Right? We're building maturity, building maturity. Because it says, verse 14, there's another part of this. We are equipping the saints for the work of service until positively they reach this, and negatively they don't do this, which is, as a result, we're no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. And we're not really a maritime society. It's a little harder for us to get this idea of a boat on the waves, on the ocean. When the wind is used properly by that boat, it directs it towards its destination, right? But when the sailors don't know how to properly use the sails, every gust of wind causes the ship, the ship to change course. This could speak of a gale or a, a huge storm, but it probably doesn't. It probably just see, speaks of the fact that the, there's always waves on the sea, there's always wind that's blowing, and the proper sailors know how to take the ship, adjust the sails, and work through the waves that come. And they don't constantly get taken off course. Well, there's a wave here. Oh, we're over here. Oh, there's a, there's a breath of wind here. We're over here. We have this new faddish doctrine here. We're going to take that. The church, boom, blown off course. And somebody else comes. And by these, these, away, these are doctrines. Satan fools the church not by coming in with pure rank heresy. That's very rare. He comes in saying, look, here's a new doctrine. It's related to who Jesus is. It's related to the end times. But it draws you away. And you're not discerning enough to know because your elders haven't taught you how to do that or you haven't received from the elders what you need. And so you are a child it's a child. I mean, think about your children. Every day they want to be something different. Every day they want to try something different. Every day their characters misform. They're like, they get angry over here. Why are you, why, you know, why are you a little child? He's sitting on the ground, lying on the ground, throwing a tantrum. You're like, what is that? That's ugly. You don't say, whoa, that's, oh, that's great. What can I do for you? You get down, oh, can I help you? Like, you need to stop that because this is absolutely worthless. This is a little child who's just driven by his desires. I can make all kinds of applications all refrain this morning. I don't have time. That you don't let little children make decisions about their whole lives because they're immature. But unfortunately, they're being led by a group of adults who are just as immature. But that's not society, unfortunately. That's the church. That's the church. We can't blame it out there. It is here in our midst. That is in the churches in the United States and around the world. They are, unfortunately, too many of them children, and we will be the same. It says, don't no longer be children. Everybody comes in as a babe. You all start out immature in Christ. Not one of you walked through this door as the gift to mankind, the gift to the church. When you came to Christ, you were a baby, and you had to be taught. And we have all levels of maturity here. We're all learning more, but nobody came in. The elders didn't come in as, we were, we were strong, mature, meat-eating, you know, 25-year-olds. We were babies, and so were you. Each one of us then has to stop being a child. And our churches have to stop being children who are just driven by anything. Oh, I like this. I like this today. I want to go this today. The Bible means this today. Oh, the Bible now means this. Oh, the Old Testament used to mean that. Now it means this. No, it meant one thing. It always has, and it continues to mean it, and that's what we continue to do. We cannot be blown about like children. So not storm-tossed children, tossed here and there. Right? Again, maybe in a storm, but maybe just unable to actually navigate the real winds that come and the actual waves that, that, that buffet a ship. And then also it says, not gullible children, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Again, puffs of wind, go here, puff of wind. If you don't shape the sails, and the sails and take some down and add some, depending on how much wind there is and where it's coming from, you never get where you're supposed to go. Well, the church is headed towards aimlessness. Because we have things to believe, we have maturity that needs to be, and it says, 
blown about by every wind of doctrine. Again, those things which, which manifest themselves as biblical truth but are not. And then by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Satan has a plan. The plan is to destroy the church because it is the church that represents Jesus. And it is through the church that Jesus will fill the universe as it were. So he wants to destroy it. He can't. But he certainly can take individual churches out because they are foolish and weak and childish. And he has a plan. Don't think you're smarter than Satan. Oh, I know better than him. The elders of this church do not feel like we are somehow smarter than the evil one. We can figure this out. The moment we step away from the principles of Scripture, we are standing on our own intelligence and Satan will destroy us and this church. The moment we move away from the principles of Scripture, we are not smart enough to navigate this world apart from these principles, and neither are you in any area of your life. He is smarter than you and more powerful than you. He's not smarter than God or more powerful than God, and that's why you take hold of God through his word. You will be tricked. This trickery of men by craftiness and deceitful scheming, it is men who incorporate the craftiness of the evil one. I think that's what's behind here. Paul's going to go on again and talk, your wrestle's not against men in Ephesians 6. It's against these spiritual forces. Satan is working through men to destroy the church by deceiving unsuspecting believers because they are children, not carefully brought up in the truths of the faith, not equipped by their leaders, and the elders will be held responsible. The leaders of the church are responsible for this. And so therefore, we must work hard to see that that is not the case. So what will you do? You need, to, you need to carefully evaluate. Are we taking hold of the equipping ministry that the church has provided in ways that keep us from being children? Are we taking on this truth and then pouring it out into the church so that it is strong? You bear the weight of the strength of this church. It is you who are to be active in this. You cannot check out and say, I'll show up on Sunday mornings and I hope this church gets strong and then complain about it when it isn't. And I'm not saying you are doing that. I'm only saying we can't afford to do that because attendance is not the same as ministry, right? Attendance is not the same as being equipped. So, so that's the first thing you need to think about. The second one is are you constantly praying for the leaders of the church to do the things they're called to do, the ministry of the word and prayer, asking that the Lord will grant them strength and wisdom to do so because that's what they've been given to do. And, they, and that, that's, that would be your thought towards the leadership. This, have a proper expectation of what the leadership ought to be doing and then a proper understanding of what you should be doing. So you need to talk about this as a family. You need to sit down. Husbands and wives, talking about it. Talk with your children. How are we doing this? How are we as a family living this out? What are our expectations so that we can then walk forward together in understanding these truths? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you for the truths of your word. Thank you that you equip us to accomplish this work that you have granted gifted men to the church who might then be able to teach and, and pray in such a way that every person in this congregation can be equipped to build the body, to use their giftedness in a way which enables all the other members to be strong and deep and, or that we would be a church that is not driven here and there by winds. We're not simply carried about by the waves. We are not tricked by the craftiness of the evil one as it displays itself through the doctrines of men. And Lord, as we do so, that we would be strong and deep. But I pray also, Father, I pray that we would be a kind, gracious, gentle, compassionate church as we reflect your character and nature to a world that needs to know the truth and needs to see your character of love flowing through us. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen.